Productions from Capital. Hello and welcome to the latest in our podcast series from Capita on the theme of the great opportunity. I'm Justine Green and we continue to look at the opportunities and choices organisations need to make to plan, rebuild and come back stronger during such unprecedented times. Our spotlight this time is on building the societies of the future. And our guests are Natasha McIntyre-Hall, Assistant Director, Strategic Developments at Portsmouth City Council. Hello, Natasha. Hi there. And Del Alibokas, Head of IoT Capita Consulting. Hello, Del. Hello. Now, Natasha, I understand you already have a clear idea of how a town in the future could look. Paint a picture for us of Tipner West in Portsmouth. Tipner West is a new scheme that's coming forward by uh, Portsmouth City Council. It's on a area of land just off the side of the motorway and we're looking at roughly three and a half thousand residential units and a million square foot of marine and maritime employment. When we looked at Tipner West we wanted to put health and well-being first and so the natural thing to do was eliminate the car. The focus of that is being able to walk out of your front door into an engaging community and for us that means public realm it means green space it means really easy access out to the seafront and it is a place for people of all ages and abilities it sounds pretty idyllic uh del how about your view of society's future what else should we be thinking about where we have better communications 5g 4g in the countryside we might see now the the resurgence of, of villages uh, and then industries around those villages uh, popping up because people now don't need to travel in to London, for instance. So I see, I foresee in the future that with this uh, invisible infrastructure, uh, it will bring a lot more benefits, both in terms of, well, in terms of the environment, in terms of transportation uh, and the local economy. Now, looking at developments like Nine Elms in London, with thousands of people set to be living high up in the sky, is this also now the way forward? It's making extremely good use of the environment and constraints that, that you're in. So if we're in London, you know, you, you haven't got acres and acres of, of green, etc. And, and coastline. But um, there's a smart way of doing things. And we have to remember, and I think what's been happening over the last, I would say, five years or so, 10 years, um, and certainly the pandemic has, has brought it out. It's about individuals. It's about society. It's about um, feeling good. It's not all about work. And when we come home from work or when we're with our children, etc., um, it's, it's the surroundings that we're in. The balance has to be between the uses. I mean, we've demonstrated many times over throughout the decades that actually if we build anything that is pure residential, it takes some time, but it, it fails as a community because what you need are these areas where people can have joint experiences. Um, and traditionally, quite a lot of places that are 100% residential, they fail to create genuine communities of people with different uses because in order to create a community, you have to be able to bring like-minded people together. A question for you both, how much are people an asset in the redevelopment process? If there were no people, uh, we certainly wouldn't be designing these places, but they have valid experiences and they contribute to places. You know, when you look at the successful um, cities and suburbs around, the strongest sort of part of that is that community feel. And in order for that, people need to be able to 
have a voice and have somewhere to put their idea and that is really where people then start to take over a place rather than place dictating how it should be used. Now with technology and, and just the way we communicate on an everyday basis, you know, feedback is almost instantaneous. So we're now seeing um, organisations like local authorities and central government be much more held to account, quite easy, uh, a lot more easier than it was uh, previously. So yes, I mean, it, it's now... Uh, it is all about citizens. It is all about what they want. It's, it's slowly moving in that direction. Okay, well, next, let's talk about turning the vision into reality. Now, when it comes to building societies of the future, are we moving too slowly or has the pandemic accelerated the need for change? Natasha? Uh, I'm really torn uh, for this question. Um, On the one hand, I love change and I would love to be able to incorporate it into the designs more quickly. But on the other hand, what I am is a city and large scale regeneration development specialist. And the one thing that I know is that we cannot do things quickly. And I think that that can be a blessing and a curse. So the pandemic has definitely sped up the way that people think about things. And Dal, how challenging is it to engage everyone in societal transformation when plans are untested? Generally speaking, people uh, communicate a lot quicker and and expect things to happen a lot quicker. And for things to change, as going into the point Natasha made, it takes a lot of planning and policies have to be created. Now, what, what I'm really hoping is going to happen with, with all the data points that we can collect around cities from air quality, from traffic density, from wellness, even down to the different ailments in, in NHS hospitals to, to truancy, we can, we can look at all of that data. We can then feed that back in and then look at the patterns and then be able to drive policies and implement change. How do you both think the sceptics can be convinced that new ways of living will make our lives better? What we have to keep our focus on, and it's been good to see how it's been done in Portsmouth, is it's about the citizen. It's about the everyday person um, that going about their daily lives and, and all the routine in their life. And then how you can superimpose, uh, from my perspective, a, a digital element to that. Uh, what we do in terms of the Um, developments that we get involved in sometimes they can be a 20-year build Um, and in the case of Tipnet it's been in the planning for a good 30 years now what we are doing to help those skeptics understand that this is now a reality is we are showing up we are visible and we will continue to answer questions we are being as transparent as we can we are allowing them to ask questions and we are providing as much information as we can in a timely manner The cost of putting infrastructure underground for a greener surface can't be cheap. And are we ready to change the ease of access, for example, for our delivery vehicles? I think that's a fascinating question. Um, And I'm completely biased, of course. Um, I think we have to be really careful about how we use the word cost for a starter, because um, cost versus value means that if we can create more space um, for people and that actually gives them a value whether or not that's monetary and we're able to charge more for the residential units or whether that is physical in that we can measure that actually the people who live on Tipna West are much healthier than people who live in another area there is value to that 
Now, when we've gone out and done our consultation, actually people are really happy with the idea of having somewhere to leave their cars. But delivery vehicles is a very, it's the same sort of thing. Actually knowing that you have a centralized hub, knowing that someone can collect your shopping even if you're not there and you can go and collect it at your own convenience, people so far in our, in our consultation are really happy with that. What we're proposing here and centralized car parks, it's not new. Uh, it's, it might be newer kind of subject in the UK, but it's been going on in, in the continent for for quite some time. Uh, myself, I used to live in Sweden, and and actually we had a central car park, and, and then walked to our apartments from from there. And, and, and slightly futuristic, if we look at you know logistics and transportation. Well, we're already seeing um, drones and autonomous vehicles, you know, uh, being trialled. I think it's in Milton Keynes, and and although this sounds like uh, sci-fi, and and you know, is this going to be mainstay? I think it probably will be. You know, we'll be having, you know, drones flying with packages and, and we'll have in these autonomous little vehicles driving around. OK, in our final part next, we'll look at technology's role in societal change. Tomorrow's Organisations Well, we're all aware of technology's valuable contribution to life and work recently. Dell, with perhaps a more dispersed population and less reliance on travel in the future, how else could new technologies change society? So I'll take a couple of areas. So if we look at technology and, let's say, transport, for instance, we're talking about 5G, the data associated with that, autonomous vehicles. Um, we will see the impact uh, on that with motorways and with the B roads, etc. What I could almost see, though, is a slight other issue here: is as more of us are working from home, and, and actually that is not going to stop when the pandemic ends. You know, I, I would imagine at least 40, 50 percent, maybe 40 percent of people will still work from home. We have another potential issue here: um, is that the number of vehicles on A roads and B roads may increase at a local area. Um, So that's something to look at. And again, technology can help in there in terms of monitoring the air pollution associated with that, potholes, etc. And then if we look at the workplace and um, industry, the one thing that I think we have a problem with is the intelligent use of data. We're all great now, and we've seen a lot of digital transformation projects where, we, where we've got the ability to ingest or create data through devices. Uh, we're doing that very well and storing the data. But I think we've got a journey to go yet to really drive intelligent outcomes, uh, using the data properly to drive the, the best outcomes we can for our citizens. Natasha, what type of real-time insights do you hope technology will give us to measure societal change and plan better? Tipna provides an extra 2.2 kilometres of open waterfront that we would that is, just doesn't exist at the moment. Um, one of the things that we've done through an inclusive design is step all the residential units back so that everybody has access to the whole waterfront. Now, things like that and eliminating cars, we believe will benefit health. And what we would like to be able to do is take measurements from the beginning to understand actually, does this work? Have we sort of projected this and then proved it for ourselves? Or actually, are we measuring this? Are there less GP visits? Are there less people um, who have type 2 diabetes? 
we would like to be able to understand that. We'd also like to understand, you know, what air quality is like or, you know, minutes playing outside. It, it, it was shocking for me to understand, um, and it's not, it, it's all over the country in public, uh, in the public sector, uh, and in some of the private sector organisations, actually, that different departments, so the NHS, for example, the data there isn't being able to be communicated with um, social services, with education, with policing, and, and there are direct links. When you, get, when you gather that data and then you apply the intelligence to that data, you will start to see patterns. You will start to see the effects, cause and effect of, let's say, a reduction in, in pensions, for instance. What does that have on the effect on the NHS? What does that have effect on, on well-being and on crime? So it's really, really important that going forward, we have uh, what I've called the, the data exchange, the, the public data exchange backbone almost in, in every community is available. Because without that, we're not going to be able to really move forward as a society, both in, in, in a local area, but also as a smart nation uh, going forward. Finally, a question for you both. If we are to reimagine how we live and work and implement this change quickly, will the effects be as profound as those felt in the first industrial revolution? Yes they could significantly change you know we talk about work-life balance um but this is a this is a different way of living work-life balance is already almost out of date when you work in the same room as you uh as you relax the world suddenly feels like a very different place and if we can start to get hold of things like flexible working and we can actually change some of those things and those interactions yes life will fundamentally change for people and people are not going to want to give up a lot of what they've learned through this pandemic and so how are we going to enable that you know we've had a lot of people who are looking for um who are coming to us where we're recruiting at the moment and they're asking questions about working conditions and i think it's terrific that people are able to be that upfront with the way that they would like to work the way that suits them so if we can do the same with the way that they live and they can demand a certain way of living then yes, this will fundamentally change what we know about acceptable life in the UK. If we can take the positives out of the pandemic, it, it is the, I think what it has done is really started to glue a lot of society back together, get some, some of the traditional values back, I would say, or, or understanding. So things like the arts, appreciation of the arts and, and actually well-being and actually having some time to yourself and taking a walk out and, oh, there's a river down the road. I didn't know it was there, you know, because we just don't have the time normally to do that. So I think it's inevitable again. And I, and I think that history will go down the road of, well, it took them a while to get there, but they got there. Portsmouth was slightly too far away from the commuters of London who were having to go in four or five times a week. For people who will need to go into London once a week, Portsmouth is perfect. And having a city that it doesn't matter where you are, you are no more than a 15 minute bike ride away from the seaside. I mean, who wouldn't want to live in that kind of environment rather than living somewhere that is not as accessible to this lovely open space because it's close to your work? And, and one other point on that is that we, we also have to understand that this is not just going to be driven by um, individuals. I mean, the pandemic has caused companies to rethink their office strategy uh, and to centralize things in London or Manchester and Birmingham actually a, a more decentralized approach is it's much more cost effective not just in terms of um, office space rental but but also in terms of being able to reach customers get customer feedback 
and, and service hubs. So there's some real thinking going on and, and you will see that a lot of companies, I would say at least a third of companies, probably won't be going back to anywhere near the numbers in London as they did before. Well, that's it for this podcast. It's been a really enlightening conversation with you both. Natasha, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. And Dell, thank you to you as well. Thank you very much. It was enjoyable. Join us again where we'll continue to explore the great opportunity with more experts from business, government and academia. Also, do subscribe to this series so you won't miss an episode. From me, Justine Green, Natasha and Dell, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>